Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Paul the Apostle says the Christian faith is useless if not for the resurrection of Jesus. It is of no value. And actually, Paul goes even further and says it's not just of no value. It's not just a useless faith. He says its believers are pathetic if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen. He says others should even feel sorry for believers without the resurrection, that they are open to be objects of ridicule. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. It's up on the monitors. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We are to be pitied. People are to look on us with pity. Like, like how could you, you sad, ignorant people, as if they feel sorry for us, like we're dunderheads. But the ramifications are even more serious than that if Jesus was not resurrected. Did you hear what Paul says in this passage? You are still in your sins. And we are misrepresenting God. In other words, without Christ's resurrection, death has not been defeated. And neither Jesus nor we have victory over death, which death is the penalty for our sin. So when we die in our mortal bodies, there is no assurance of heaven or of eternal life in God's presence. And therefore, believers including us, are misrepresenting God because we are proclaiming a resurrection that didn't happen. Well, even more than that, if not for the resurrection of Jesus, the Bible itself cannot be trusted. All of Scripture would be questionable, for it claims through the Old Testament and the New Testament that the Messiah dies and comes back to life and gifts that new life to his followers also. These promises are bunk if not for the, if the resurrection of Christ did not happen. Indeed, if Jesus didn't come back to life, even his death was pointless. It means he went through the humiliation and pain and degradation for absolutely nothing. So as much as we discuss and revel in Jesus' sacrifice and death on the cross, and we should, It's his resurrection that is the most central fact of Christianity. John MacArthur says, No event in history reaches the importance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And that's not just in Christianity, that's for all of humanity, all of human history. My fellow Christians, there is no legitimate reason to follow Christ if he didn't rise from the grave. There is no reason we have the hope of heaven. That wonderful, confident expectation, as Rob likes to say. No reason for the peace that surpasses all human understanding. In fact, Christianity would be no different than any pagan religion that demands allegiance to a self-appointed ruler or an inanimate idol. By me and by Lewis, Lord, that these are your words, that these are not ours. Let us yield to you in all these matters. Let us yield to you to give us the understanding that you want us to have. Father, I thank you that you have given us the ability and the freedom and the time and the place to do this. We ask for your blessing upon this time. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. All right, so before we dive in, it must be said that a mound of evidence alone will not bring someone to a saving knowledge of Christ. Okay, you can have all the evidence in the world. Only God, only God Almighty can do that. Okay, only by his grace can he open a person's eyes and move their heart to repentance and give the gift of salvation. It's a gift of God, okay? Uh, we have evidence of this in Luke 24, where on the day of his resurrection, twice the risen Jesus appears in bodily form and stands among his followers, once along a road and once in a house, and he speaks with them, and he even eats with them, and yet they do not understand that it is Jesus with them, resurrected from the dead. Despite the incredible evidence right in front of their eyes and all the miraculous events that had unfolded before then and along with his repeated pronouncements about what was going to happen, the Christ's own followers still doubted. And why is that? It's because our own effort and our own intellect do not open our eyes in our heart to the Savior, it is purely a work of God in his timing. So in verse 24, 16 of Luke, it says, their eyes were kept from recognizing him on the road to Emmaus. So he's on the road with two of his disciples, and he's talking with them. He is clearly seen by them. They just spent the better part of three years with this amazing guy, and they don't recognize him. And then he then teaches them how all of the Old Testament concerns himself. He sits down for a meal with them. They still don't understand who it is. He takes bread. He blesses it. He breaks it to give it to them. And it's at this point their eyes were opened and he makes himself known to them. And then in Luke 24, verse 44, as he stands among his stunned followers in the house, he tells them again how all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in him. Then, it says in verse 45, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. 
and they began to worship him with great joy and continual blessing. So what is the decisive action here? It's not man's, it's God's. He opens the eyes and he opens the mind. And so without God moving in our lives, we will not come to a saving faith in him on our own. But he does use many tools to get our attention. And he uses different tools to begin to open our eyes and chip away at our hardened hearts. And chief among these tools is his written word, the Bible. And it's in his word where we have abundant evidence of the resurrection. And there are three main pieces of evidence typically used to explain the reality of his resurrection from the dead. The, his empty tomb, his appearances after he died, and the rapid growth of the church. And all three provide very strong arguments so that we can trust the resurrection account. But for day, today's lesson, I really want to drill into the first two because I believe they form the best evidence to solidify the faith of the believer. Now keep in mind, a non-believer may not accept the claims of the Bible as an unbiased authority. We know that. I mean, it's amazing. Many people are willing to trust what a blogger says or an Instagram influencer. But the Bible, well, no, nope, that's just old-fashioned. That's outdated. That's, you know, bigoted and intolerant. But as we see, not only is the Bible the most trustworthy source and an incredibly accurate recording of the words of God, it's more relevant today than it has ever been. And therefore, to provide evidence of the resurrection of Jesus, we're going to eagerly dive into the scriptures. And plus, we'll use basic logic, logic and reasoning, and that's available to any person. Uh, whether they're biblically literate or not. And those do the job quite well of supporting the resurrection of Jesus. There's a scholar named William Lane Craig, and he says we actually may be surprised to learn that the majority of critics of the New Testament who investigate the Gospels, they actually accept the central facts that undergird the resurrection of Jesus. So the evidence is there. So here we go. For that. All right, so the tomb is empty and we have seen him. The tomb is empty and we have seen them. If you don't remember anything else from today's message, please remember those two things. The tomb is empty and we have seen him. Now, why is it so important that the tomb or the grave? where Jesus' body was laid after he was killed on the cross, became empty. And it's because if it can be shown that Jesus' body was still in the grave, then he did not have a bodily resurrection. He would be no different than any other man. His claims to be God and resurrected would be impossible to defend, and it would cut the heart out of the entire Bible. And this... This fact is the holy grail for, uh, of dispute for non-believers and skeptics. If they can explain away the empty tomb and account for Jesus' body, 
then they smash the resurrection and the whole Christian faith like a sledgehammer into a house made of toothpicks. Just brings it down. So, how do we know the tomb was empty? And how do we know it remained empty? One, the by the reaction of Jesus' opponents. By the reaction of Jesus' opponents. He had many, many adversaries in that day. And they would have just pointed to the tomb still holding his body to shoot down any of the believers' claims of a resurrection. But guess what? No one did. They were in Jerusalem. They knew where the tomb was. It wasn't a secret. All they had to do to prove Jesus' followers were a, a bunch of phonies was to go to the tomb and see it for themselves and see that it was occupied by a body, Jesus' body. But they couldn't make the claim because there was no body there. Instead, they concocted a lie, and in doing so, they unwittingly corroborated the fact that the tomb was empty. In Matthew 28, some of the Roman guards who were charged with guarding the tomb, the entrance to the tomb, went and told the chief priests what had happened, that the tomb had been opened and emptied. And so the chief priests met with the religious leaders and bribed the guards to say the disciples stole the body during the night. Well, this shows that the body was in fact missing from the tomb. As William Lane Craig says, the earliest Jewish response to the disciples' proclamation that he had risen from the dead was not to point to his occupied tomb and laugh them off as fanatics, but to claim that they had taken away Jesus' body. Thus, we have evidence of the empty tomb from the very opponents of the early Christians. Next, Paul says so in the 1 Corinthians 15 passage. And here Paul says he's reminding the Corinthian believers what is of first importance or what is the most important thing. In verse 3, it's that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And then in verse 4, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now this is a particularly convincing report mainly because of its early origins. Paul is delivering what was actually an established creed of the early church. And this creed had been developed uh, as a, a real succinct summary of the facts of the faith and was recited among the early believers. Scholars date that creed to within three to five years of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's at the time when Paul had visited Jerusalem, and he had spent time with Peter and James, really on a fact-finding mission is what he was there for. He spent several weeks with them. And so from that time, that, it's so soon after Jesus died and was resurrected that biblical scholars say that there, it rules out the chance that that story is made up or a legend or just a fanciful story. Uh, the standards of historians say it takes far longer than that for, those, for a legend to develop. Third, third piece of evidence 
of how we know that the tomb was empty is that women reached the tomb first. Women reached the tomb first. Why is that significant? Well, the fact that all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they record the women who followed Jesus from Galilee were the first to the tomb on the morning after the Sabbath, and they found the tomb empty. The fact that four independent sources record this occurrence is powerful because in that day, women's testimony was held in very low esteem. There would be no incentive on the part of the gospel writers to say that women were the first to report the most important fact of their faith unless it were true. So the women reached the tomb first. Fourth, is Paul's testimony in the book of Acts. Luke records Paul's words in Acts 13, verses 29 through 31, that Jesus rose from the grave. It says in verse 29, and this is Paul speaking, and when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. The fifth way we can know that the tomb was empty, the fifth piece of evidence, is that Jesus was buried after his death. He was buried in a tomb. He was buried by Joseph of Arimathea, who just happened to be a member of the Jewish ruling council. So a member of the religious leaders, the religious elite there, and the, the Jews, he's the one who buried him. So the Jews knew where it was. That site was known to Jews and to Christians alike. And because it was known to both Jews and Christians, the disciples could not have gotten away with proclaiming Jesus' resurrection if the tomb weren't empty. The Jewish authorities would have exposed the whole affair. The sixth piece of evidence, the four Gospels record the tomb being empty. And even skeptics put stock in the reliability of the accounts of the empty tomb in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. For example, there's a skeptical historian named Michael Grant, Michael Grant, and he was a, a professor at a university, Edinburgh University in England, and he wrote a book based on his review of the four Gospels. And after reviewing them in depth, he concluded, true, the discovery of the empty tomb is differently described by the various Gospels. And that's true, a few of the details are a little different. But if we apply the same sort of criteria that we would apply to any other ancient literary sources, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. There is no other leader or ruler or guru or idol or small g god who can provide evidence of rising from the dead or of having an empty tomb. Only Jesus the Christ. Of course, but that hasn't stopped people from every generation of trying. And various theories have been thrown around without credible evidence. I'll touch on just a few of them. 
These are typically the main ones you'll hear. The theory that Jesus' disciples stole the body out of the grave at night and hid it. What's the problem here? Well, why would the disciples do this and maintain the lie in face of the intense persecution and even death that they faced for proclaiming a risen Christ? We know this. People will die maybe for something they believe in, uh, even if it turns out to be false, but no one willingly suffers and dies for what they know to be a lie. If you know it's a lie, you would not do that. How about this one? Jesus never really died. He just went into a, a, a swoon or a sleep or a, a form of coma, and then he revived after being buried. Here's the problem. Roman centurions confirmed his death on the cross. They thrust a spear into his side and outflowed blood and water. And modern medical experts say that even if Jesus survived, the beatings, the scourgings, the hanging, he would have been so weakened that there is no chance that he could have regained the power after being put in this tomb to move that stone and leave the tomb, let alone overpower the guards who were stationed outside. That's just fanciful. And if anybody could identify how to kill a person, it was the Romans. Then there's this one. How about Jesus had a twin brother who made the appearances for him? Yes, that has been propagated by people. One problem, there's no account of Jesus having a twin brother. And just my thought, don't you think his mother, who was there the whole way, probably would have, would have known the difference, would have seen the difference? Anyway, author Lee Strobel sums it up this way. The empty tomb, as an enduring symbol of the resurrection, is the ultimate representation of Jesus' claim to be God, the empty tomb. So what are we to take from this today? One, the tomb is empty. Now onto the second plank of evidence, we have seen him. The New Testament records many instances in which Jesus appears in bodily form to his disciples, and this was attested by multiple authors. In multiple books of the New Testament, John, Matthew, Luke, Acts, 1 Corinthians. The New Testament records many, many of these. And as we know, matching accounts from multiple eyewitnesses, if they're matching, they make for a high probability of truth. In this case, these appearances of a risen Christ are independent of each other. They're in different locations, and some even happen at different times. And so I'm just going to highlight a few of these. First one is the appearance to Saul. To Saul. The Apostle Paul was first Saul of Tarsus, a brutal persecutor of the early Christians. He hunts them down. He throws them into prison. He... He orders them to be killed. And then in the book of Acts, 
we read of this dramatic reversal of his life after being visited by the resurrected Christ. Here is Saul, one day being a despised hater of this new sect of Christ followers, instantly turning into the devoted apostle of the very one who he had hated just hours earlier. He did this because the resurrected Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus and chooses to open his spiritual eyes. Jesus then uses Paul to write major portions of the New Testament. So zealous is Paul for for Christ after that. Second one I want to highlight. He appears to Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene. In John chapter 20, Mary goes to the tomb sees it empty, goes back to tell Peter and John. Then she returns with them to the tomb. And then she stays there after Peter and John go back to their homes. She goes in. She stoops down to look again inside the tomb. And when she turns around, Jesus is standing there. And he speaks to her. Well, at first she isn't sure who it is. But then... Jesus identifies himself. He tells her, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. She later announces to the other disciples, I have seen the Lord. Jesus opened her eyes. The third one, he appears to Peter, the 12 apostles, Jesus' brother, James, Paul, and 500-plus believers at once. And this is part of Paul's powerful presentation in that creed in 1 Corinthians 15. In verses 5 through 8, he says, He, being Jesus, appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve apostles. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some, may, some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The fact that Paul includes the phrase, most of whom are still alive, is key. That's a key. It means there were hundreds of eyewitnesses available to be questioned when Paul wrote This Bible scholar, Dr. Gary Habermas, he told Strobel when he was interviewed about the appearances, you would never include this phrase unless you were absolutely confident that these folks would confirm that they really did see Jesus alive. All right, the fourth one I want to highlight is Jesus appears to the other women, the other women. In Luke 24 and Matthew 28, additional women besides Mary Magdalene go to the tomb to embalm Jesus' body with ointments and spices. It's there they encounter angels who tell them Jesus is written, or risen. Sorry. Then upon leaving, Jesus himself appears to them. And look at the women's response. They respond by taking hold of Jesus' feet and worshiping him. Here's another one, the fifth one. He appears to 11 disciples 
including Thomas. This is a familiar story. John records in verses 26 through 29 of chapter 20 in the book of John that Jesus stands among his disciples who are gathered in, a, in the home. Now, this is eight days after Thomas tells his fellow disciples, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Okay, so Jesus shows up eight days later and tells Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. It actually was a risk. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Well, it's no surprise Thomas is humbled and he is overwhelmed as his eyes are opened. My Lord and my God, he confesses. And the last one I want to highlight, Jesus appears to Stephen. To Stephen. He's a bold witness for Christ. Stephen, it, he enrages the, the religious officials with a speech in which he calls them out for their persecution and their hardened hearts. And as they, as they predictably respond in great anger, they prepare to send Stephen to be stoned to death. And Stephen looks up and he sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen calls out loudly, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, the Bible says that for 40 days, Jesus appeared to people after his resurrection. So these examples are just, just a sliver. In fact, the last two chapters in the Gospel of John detail multiple appearances to the disciples. And John ends the book by asserting that there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, as with the empty tomb, some critics have tried to dismiss the bodily appearances of Jesus. Just a couple of these, a couple of these theories. They suggest that the accounts are just legends that grew over time. Problem with that is if the resurrection were just a legend, the tomb would be filled. But it was empty on that morning. How about the idea of this theory? All the appearance were, appearances were simply hallucinations on the part of Jesus' followers. There's a group called the Jesus Seminar that uh, ascribes to this. There's a problem here, though. Doctors and scientists say that hallucinations are individual occurrences. Only one person can see a given hallucination at one time. And one person can't cause another person to have that same hallucination. Therefore... Hallucination does not explain how Jesus appeared to multiple groups of people at once. Now, I want to wrap this up, and, and I'm sorry if it's been a little bit listy, kind of full of lists or, or a little bit of a academic exercise, but 
the resurrection of Jesus demands a response. So we can know this, but it demands a response. It forces us not to be neutral. Because this resurrection and the promise that Jesus gives, that he grants the same resurrection to us, is the most profound act for eternity. His followers, as you notice, stopped being neutral immediately. The same disciples who hid after Jesus' arrest, they quickly became bold and outspoken witnesses of what they had seen, even though this brought severe ridicule to them. It brought persecution their way. And most were killed, actually, for their, their belief. But they could not be silent about what they had witnessed. And likewise, as Christians, the Word of God gives us all we need to know that Jesus is indeed a risen, living Savior. Look at John 20, 31. John says many of Jesus' activities with his followers after his resurrection are not recorded, actually. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The scholar, the scholar Craig says, says this, in an age of religious relativism and pluralism, that's, that's us, the resurrection of Jesus constitutes a solid rock on which Christians can take their stand for God's decisive self-revelation in Jesus. Agreed. So to close, because of the resurrection, Christ sits at the right hand of the Father. He intercedes for you and me. He actually prays for you and me. We have an advocate with the Father. Because of his resurrection, he sent the Holy Spirit to open our eyes. And he gave us the Spirit to enable us to understand the Scriptures. His resurrection was the Father accepting his sacrifice for our sins in full. Because of his resurrection, he bestowed upon us spiritual gifts. Because of the resurrection, he promises to resurrect us to new life when our bodies die. We have the promise of eternal life in heaven with Christ. John MacArthur says, everything that we are, and have, and ever hope to be, all that we believe in is predicated on the reality of the resurrection. So this morning, my fellow believers, let the evidence of Jesus' resurrection renew your affection for him today. Understand that God's most magnificent work is given to you as a gift. We know the living word made flesh by God's living and active words to us. Let us always rejoice in this. The tomb is empty, and we have seen him. As the worship team comes up, let's bow our heads and pray and consider the incredible hope and confidence that we have because we have a risen Savior who loves us, has called us to love him 
and gives us the keys to eternal life. Let's pray. Dear Father, your word to us, your promises to us, defy words in many cases. That is the case with your resurrection. And yet you have given us all we need to understand the truth that you are a risen, resurrected Savior, and that your promise of that gift to us is sure and true. Father, let us stand on that rock. Let it infuse our lives with a dedication to love you and to worship you and to share you with everybody else out of our love for them. Father, we thank you that we have your perfect word, infallible, and by it we know you. We praise your name in the name of the risen Christ. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.